Hello and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am your host, Garrett Ashley Mullet. And today we're going to talk about insecurity. And the reason insecurity is on my mind uh, is a book I'm reading right now called Lost to the West, the Forgotten Byzantine Empire that Rescued Western Civilization. The author is Lars Brownworth. Uh, it's a 10-hour and 3-minute audiobook <clears throat> I downloaded on Audible here a couple of weeks ago. And during a trip to Wyoming and back, day before yesterday, I've, I've already listened to most of the book. Uh, very interesting read for those that are not real familiar with the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Uh, from Constantine onward, uh, just a really different uh, story was taking place there. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to look at the story of Belisarius in particular and uh, Empress Theodora. And Belisarius, I didn't realize this, I hadn't myself studied Byzantine history very much, uh, but just this fantastic general, and he rises up from obscurity. Uh, he is, a, I think, a bodyguard, part of a expeditionary force to attack the Persians at one point uh, early in his career. And he ends up being the most remarkable part of that expedition. And uh, he's the, the cream that rises to the top. And... You know, as his as his career grows, he's increasingly the go-to guy. When nobody else can figure out how to conquer the uh, enemies of the Eastern Roman Empire, Belisarius is called back up. And at least the way uh, Lars Brownworth uh, portrays things in his book, now Belisarius isn't really, uh, I guess too bent out of shape when he is dismissed repeatedly and uh, kind of sent into retirement. But, you know, maybe that's, uh, maybe it's something that it was, you know, it was part of a, a clever ploy at the time. He didn't want to seem too ambitious for his own sake. Uh, wasn't going to make it, you know, make any waves if he was upset. But uh, it's funny, he, he would be sent off on campaign to go and, fight the enemies of the Roman Empire, uh, both in Italy and in uh, the East with the Persians. And he'd be sent on campaign with far too few men. And somehow he would end up pulling off a victory anyways through improvisation and uh, just sheer force of personality and will. His men were so inspired by him that they would uh, fight uh, just heroically. And so whatever he was able to accomplish with just a few thousand men against, you know, tens of thousands of men, anytime he would request more men, more resources uh, from Emperor Justinian, uh, Empress Theodora, who had also risen to her uh, high and lofty place from being a, a commoner, from being an actress, which, uh, according to the author, is uh, something akin to a, a prostitute, or it was it was considered uh, that lowly in that day and age. 
you, you pretty much were a prostitute. If you were an actress, I guess maybe the, the two roles were one and the same or they were combined or I don't know. But anyway, Theodora, she had risen to being an empress from being a very common person and was very shrewd uh, and very ambitious to not have anything get in the way of her continuing to be this empress and her husband Justinian continuing to be the emperor. And she felt really threatened by Belisarius. Uh, anytime he would request more men, as long as the victories were still piling up, she would convince her husband that Belisarius just wanted to build a larger and larger army so that he could then return to Constantinople and take over and become emperor. Now, meanwhile, Belisarius, uh, by all appearances, really did need more men in order to uh, not just uh, win victories, but be able to secure those victories. So, for instance, when he went into Italy and he's campaigning against uh, the barbarians who had invaded there, uh, and he's trying to drive them out, you know, a certain number of victories pile up. And if you started with a relatively small force, and you've left garrisons to try and hold what it is you've taken uh, and driven the, the enemy out of. Uh, you know, it, by the end of it, uh, it said he, he only had 300 men to spare to send against uh, this, this other city uh, to drive out, the, I think it was the Goths. And, uh, and so he, here he is, he's requesting more men. Theodora is only thinking of her ambitions, her husband's ambitions, and uh, for the sake of her insecurity, uh, she was starving Belisarius of the resources that he needed in order to, uh, you know, not just be a brilliant general, but to be successful ultimately in what it was that he was trying to accomplish. And uh, it, that seems to be a theme and a pattern in the Roman Empire, uh, especially. And I'm. Like most uh, moderns, I'm more familiar with the history of the Western uh, half of the Roman Empire. <coughs> but even in the, the East, apparently, uh, that was a common theme, that ambition was the undoing of uh, the empire in the end. And for as long as you had men who were willing to serve and they were willing to work together and they weren't constantly backbiting and uh, self-promoting first and foremost, as long as they were promoting themselves by doing great deeds for the common good, uh, the Roman Empire succeeded and uh, grew and was strengthened and prospered uh, in an unprecedented way. But ambition and this man or his wife wanting to be emperor or wanting to eliminate rivals or wanting to promote themselves uh, consistently it led to turbulence and upheaval, <clears throat> lack of cohesion, instability. And, uh, and I, I have to imagine it trickled down that kind of self-serving uh, mindset would trickle down to the rank and file, 
And when you have the people at the very top only thinking of promoting themselves, not caring about what's in the collective good of uh, the empire, uh, the people at the very bottom then are also uh, behaving likewise. Uh, so insecurity, it can be a, a, uh, a real uh, Achilles heel. Uh, you, by contrast, you think of somebody like a, a Belisarius who is confidently attacking a larger force with a smaller force. And he's so confident that his men believe we can do this. And not only his, his men, but the enemy. Even a larger force, uh, especially as the victories pile up, larger force coming against Belisarius and his army uh, shakes in their boots and considers an early surrender or retreat. How do we give these guys what they want before we come to battle? Uh, Belisarius got it. He's got a reputation and, uh, and it's a well-deserved reputation. It's not just hype and propaganda. He's won many victories. Of course that helps with building confidence. If you can be victorious and resourceful, but uh, yeah, there's there's one uh, little anecdote towards the end of uh, the story of Belisarius and Justinian. Uh, Belisarius is called up to uh, serve and to launch uh, some counterattacks against uh, a threat, and he does, and he's he is able to retain his position long enough to have, I think, one successful raid or ambush. And then Justinian is reminded <clears throat> why he dismissed him, all of his wife's uh, uh, you know, politicking and, and whispering things in his ear. And so he he very quickly, you can just imagine, he, he very quickly is like, okay, all right, that's enough, Belisarius. <clears throat> I'll take over from here. You know, once it starts to be... Uh, Apparent that okay now now this is back on the right track again okay your your services are no longer required but how much better to have uh, left it in the hands of a capable general uh, for him to see it through now you think about the uh, emphasis on uh, self-esteem these days and. We tie self-esteem to what? Uh, nothing. Uh, in popular culture, you're just supposed to believe in yourself. And why? You know, I think a lot of people become disillusioned. They become extremely cynical because they're told this nonsense about uh, self-esteem being detached from reality from achievement, from accomplishments. And uh, I think rather than just having high self-esteem and just being confident for the sake of confidence, uh, it behooves us to hitch our confidence to something concrete, something proven. Now, if you are, let's say, uh, an accomplished musician and you know all the notes and you can play them forwards and backwards and inside out, and you can keep your rhythm, and you can improvise, and all that. 
you know, you have reason to be confident. Somebody hands you a sheet of music and asks you to play. Now, myself, I would love to play violin, for instance. I'd love to learn that. Uh, I'd love to play uh, guitar and be able to, to be skillful at that or play piano. Uh, but I haven't applied myself. I haven't sat down and actually learned how. I haven't practiced. I don't, I don't know how to play those instruments. And so if I was very confident and had high self-esteem when you handed me a sheet of music, uh, it might actually be counterproductive. If I said, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I could do that. Uh, you know, I would have to be honest with you and really assess, okay, what are my skills uh, in this department? Do I have what it takes? And if I don't, well, then maybe I'm going to focus my energies uh, somewhere more productive, somewhere where I, I am skilled and I am capable. That way I don't frustrate myself and you and disappoint you and lead you on and all that. I think of uh, a friend of mine, Mr. Chad, Mr. Chad Cohoon. Uh, I was just recently talking with him and he was telling me about having been offered various positions. Uh, he was offered uh, a job with uh, an electrician's company here in uh, North Dakota. And it was a, it was a management position. And he says, well, you know, that's a super great, opportunity. I really appreciate that you thought of me, but I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm not qualified. Uh, I could learn what it is that I needed to learn, but I don't know it right now. And I just don't think I'm going to be the best fit for that. You'd be better served to hire somebody else for that role. And, uh, you know, I, I heard him say that and I thought, man, that's cool. That's just, that's really good that you were willing to say, I'm just not, not up for this. I don't have what it takes to make this successful. Uh, you know, for my part here recently, I've accepted a management position and, and then I've, uh, I've struggled a little bit with getting additional personnel hired on. And there's a, a, a little bit of an internal struggle when someone asks within the organization or outside the organization, Hey, can you guys do this? Can you take care of that? Uh, when it's additional work, an, addi an additional workload and in honesty, the accurate answer has to be, no, actually we can't. Um, we don't, at least not right now, we don't have the manpower to be able to successfully execute that for you. I'm sorry. Your, your best bet's going to be to find somebody else, or else you'll have to just wait. And we'll try and work it in when we have the opportunity. But, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely a, uh, a kindred spirit that I feel with Belisarius as he asks for more men uh, to fight these enemies of the Byzantine Empire uh, to successfully execute what it is that he's been sent out on mission to do. Uh, I can imagine right now his frustration if, when he asks for more men, he's told no. You know, you're being successful enough. 
with the, the men that you have, we're not going to send you anymore. Uh, the frustration of knowing, on the one hand, hey, you know what? I'm successful, and so you should believe me. You should. I should have credibility when I tell you I need more resources here. You know, if I was not being successful, do I need to fail some in order to get your attention? Or is it, how does that work? Right? You're going to wait until everything collapses to take it seriously. Well, yeah, actually, that, that is kind of the way that the world works, uh, which is ridiculous. You know, I think there should be uh, some sense on the front end of being proactive. Let's get ahead of things. Let's think ahead. Uh, let's make sure resources are where they need to be, when they need to be, not two or three months too late. You know, uh, sending reinforcements to Belisarius two months too late when there's a major battle coming, that's a good way to lose Belisarius. Uh, to have him and his men cut down in battle. Uh, or if they weren't uh, a, a potential rival before, and but then you you starve them of what they need in order to be successful, in order for them to even just uh, meet their current positions requirements, uh, you might be surprised. I mean, it, that was a good way for Belisarius either to be spurred on to uh, becoming a threat to Justinian and Theodora. Or else to do as he did, which was to retire. And he, uh, it looks like, was very happy and very willing to fade into the background anytime he was dismissed. If he was called up, he would serve. If he was dismissed, he would just go back to living a quiet life, fading into uh, obscurity, more or less. Except not obscurity, because we're all still talking about him how many hundreds of years later. You know, I think if you uh, wanted to use a biblical example, you would look at uh, the first king of Israel, King Saul. And you look at his way of relating to problems, conflict, threats, internal and external, or perceived threats. Uh, so, for instance, you know, the Philistines, they bring out an army against Israel, they camp against them. And their champion comes out between the two armies and begins calling for Israel to send their champion out. And he wants to resolve the conflict in single combat. And presumably, Israel's greatest warrior would be King Saul because uh, he is head and shoulders taller than every other man. And Goliath is a giant. And uh, you would think Saul, as a leader, <coughs> he's going to want to face this giant. And yet, where is it that you find King Saul <coughs> when David, the shepherd boy, brings food for his brothers that are in the army? Saul is in his tent, just like everybody else, waiting for what? Who knows? 
but they were afraid. When David shows up, he says, hey, who is it that's going to fight this Philistine and teach him a lesson? Here he's taunting the living God and the armies of the living God. He's taunting Israel and Yahweh God. Who's going to do something about that? David's brothers tell him, ah, get out of here. What are you asking stupid questions for? Trying to make us look bad? Go back to watching the sheep. Why are you even here? David doesn't give up at that. He goes to Saul. He offers to fight. You've got to think, at that moment, <clears throat> Saul is feeling a mix of emotions. On the one hand, he's feeling relief because clearly he didn't want to go fight Goliath. And so if David is willing to take that burden off of his shoulders, all the better. But on the flip side, <clears throat> it's got to be a, oh, wow, okay. And if this little shepherd boy is willing to go out and fight Goliath, and I'm not, how does that make me look? Well, the more pressing concern, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, is to not die, right? If he's not confident that he can best <clears throat> the Philistine champion in single combat, then he just wants to not die. And then after that, once we've figured out the not dying part of this, <clears throat> then I'll worry about self-actualization, having my, my best life, becoming my best self. David obviously goes out and he confidently states that when he was watching his father's flocks that uh, wild animals, predators came to try and take the sheep away and that the Lord his God had delivered those predators into David's hand and he would deliver Goliath into his hand as well. Just so. And Goliath asks, what am I, a dog? And you can almost hear <clears throat> David's thinking as he's saying, you know, <laughs> a lion and a bear came to get my father's sheep. Yeah, maybe you are a dog, actually. <laughs> you might as well be. And God is bigger than those wild animals. He's bigger than you. You've been taunting him, and he's going to show up. Obviously, David bests Goliath with God's blessing. He slays him. The Philistines rout. The armies of Israel chase them down, slaughter them, defeat them on battlefields. Uh, throughout David's career, and I think a large part of that is David is confident. David's confidence uh, should not be in his own strength, but it clearly is in God's strength. And that confidence is contagious. And King Saul's insecurity is contagious. 
So, what is it that Saul uh, starts doing as David <clears throat> is on the lips of the people of Israel? Yeah, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Ooh, whoa, who is this guy? Kind of like Theodora with Belisarius. Here he's this loyal servant out there winning battles. And Saul is feeling threatened, just like Theodora was feeling threatened by Belisarius. And so Saul ultimately plots to murder David, have him put to death on trumped-up charges. And that you see a lot in the Roman Empire. Where somebody comes up who is competent, and they become a threat. And they have to not only be skillful, they also have to be uh, sensitive to how their competence may threaten others. So then you hold back. You know, what's the antidote to that? And, and before we say what's the antidote, how poisonous is that to the productivity of an enterprise? You know, if you're part of a church and everybody feels threatened, when somebody is especially gifted or talented in one thing, if you're part of a business and everybody feels threatened by one person being especially talented or gifted in one thing, if you're part of a nation, and everybody is uh, self-promoting, conceited, if they've been taught to have high self-esteem, uh, disconnected from achievement, well, then what happens? You know, how do you then connect respect for others, uh, deference to others and their giftings? Uh, how do you connect that with them demonstrating that they are talented in something? You know, maybe it's accidental. Maybe it's you know, insofar as I feel like I can use you right now, I'll defer for a time till I can stab you in the back. Then I'm going to climb over your corpse and take whatever it is that was supposed to be coming to you. Well, that's no bueno. That is not a good way to run a business. It's not a good way to run uh, a nation. And if everybody's like that, don't be surprised when you, your organization, however big or small, uh, implodes, collapses in on itself in infighting, where people are starving one another of resources because they don't want somebody else to get the credit or the glory. People aren't working together. They're not coordinating their efforts. They're not communicating. They're not saying, hey, listen. We got a problem here, you know, and even just admitting, right? You know, insecurity can cause people to be dishonest and hide. You know, you see the very first <clears throat> instances of this, and sometimes the insecurity is warranted. Somebody feels vulnerable and they expect to be punished if they expose their vulnerability, if they don't hide. Uh, you see very back. Uh, way back at the beginning, the very beginning, with Adam and Eve. They're commanded, 
You can have any fruit of any tree in the garden except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on the day that you eat of that, you shall surely die. And was that a spiritual death? It meant separation from God, where he no longer was going to be walking in the cool of the mist with him as he had been intimately? Was that a spiritual death, uh, a relational death between them and God and between them and one another? That woman you gave me. And Eve's like, wow, thanks, hubby. You know, where were you when I was tempted? Why didn't you say, hey, no, remember? You know, strife and enmity and conflict and insecurity. And when God shows up after they've eaten, they hide. He asks, why did you hide? They say, we, we knew that we were naked. Well, how did you know that you were naked? Well, we knew because we ate a certain fruit. We felt exposed. We knew that we'd done messed up. God gives them clothing to cover themselves because they're ashamed. And rightly so. It's right that they're ashamed of their iniquity. But if you fast forward, to uh, our present day. What happens when people are shameless? They do what's wrong and they refuse to admit, well, that was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that hurt you. I'm sorry that I failed to rise to the occasion or come when it was that you needed help. <clears throat> what happens when people are shameless? And what happens uh, when people tie their self-esteem to nothing, to no accomplishment, no achievement? It's just supposed to be self-evident. I'm fantastic. Well, why? Don't question Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> if you go back to the Saturday Night Live uh, video <clears throat> parody with Will Ferrell for Blue Oyster Group. It's funny. Trust me. Go watch it. But I think what happens is, just to give an answer to my own, my own rhetorical question here, when people are insecure and shameless, they're lying to themselves. Uh, they try to make up for what they've lost with self-esteem. I've accomplished nothing, but I'm going to try and tell myself that's okay. Meanwhile. <clears throat> I'm not going to communicate with other people. Hey, guess what? The bridge is out ahead <clears throat> because we didn't build it or we burned it down. And then when the train goes flying over the edge, you know, make sure you can find uh, some place to run and hide to. If you have a whole society of people that are unwilling to confess and repent, that's what it boils down to. It's really what I'm getting at. And you don't have the basis for relationship between God and man, except with the fearful expectation of judgment. And you don't have the basis for 
relationship between neighbors, friends, Roman and Romans and countrymen, to lend me your ears. You don't have the basis for people getting along and being kind to one another and cooperating and working together and recognizing each other's strengths and their own weaknesses and building something intelligently together that works, that's reliable, that's dependable. You don't have a basis for that unless you also have a willingness to admit mistakes failures, shortcomings. You know, go back to Belisarius. If he's willing to say, you know, I am capable as a general, but I need men. If I don't have men to fight, we will not win. We cannot accomplish this without more men. If he's being honest, well, kudos to Belisarius. Now, Theodora is saying, sorry, uh, we're going to just take, we're going to roll the dice, we're going to take the risk that you cannot successfully do this. And if you get eliminated in the process of failing, well, then maybe that's convenient. But if you succeed anyways, well, that'll prove that I was right. You didn't need more resources. So, no. I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I could tell you about uh, my situation at work a little bit more. I could give you details. I don't think that would be appropriate. So, I'm not going to. But, um, I want to talk about this Kavanaugh issue. Uh, you've got this nominee for the Supreme Court, and the Senate Democrats are turning his confirmation hearings into a circus. And they have already. They have. They're not in the process. They already have turned the hearings into a circus, and they're trotting out. Uh, women who claim to have been sexually assaulted or raped by Kavanaugh decades ago, decades and decades ago. But there's no evidence whatsoever. They're just accusations. The accusations aren't consistent. They don't quite make sense, uh, especially with the testimony of many, many people who have known Kavanaugh his whole life, and uh, they don't reflect the character of the man today. Now, what they do, however, reflect is the Democrats' uh, earnest desire to destroy someone they see coming to the Supreme Court and being instrumental in overturning their judicial activism of the past several decades. Uh, for instance, Roe versus Wade. You know, it was an act of legislating from the bench to make it okay to murder uh, unborn children in this country, to make that not murder in terms of uh, the government responding, reacting. Uh, it is a, a kind of 
uh, eugenics. Uh, Planned Parenthood was founded by Margaret Sanger, uh, who was a eugenicist. And uh, eugenics was a big movement in uh, the U.S. Uh, prior to Nazi Germany. The Nazis, you could argue, as much got it from America uh, as anywhere. Uh, this idea of uh, selective breeding of people and of helping evolution along by weeding out uh, the quote-unquote germplasm of society. And Nazi Germany, what they did with the gas chambers, rounding up the Jews, those that were mentally ill, performing heinous uh, experiments on uh, those that they deemed to be less than human. Uh, you know, all of the murder, mass murder of people by the Nazi uh, regime, uh, all of that coming to light, at the end of World War II, having been suspected and hinted at, but nobody could believe that it was true with how civilized Germany was. Germany was kind of the pinnacle of uh, development, they had the, the best universities, the smartest people. Uh, they were the most industrious of people. And nobody could really believe that Germany uh, would be doing such a thing uh, until... The pictures came out until uh, we defeated the Nazis and we start uh, marching in to liberate these concentration camps and we find just untold numbers of people that have been murdered. And then eugenics fell out of popularity. Uh, eugenics changed uh, form in polite society in the West and uh, it became genetics. And then the, the emphasis was uh, put off of negative uh, mass murder as a way of uh, accomplishing what needed to be accomplished uh, to purify the race. And uh, the, the shift in focus was to, uh, well, let's, let's look if, and see if there's kinder, gentler ways that we can weed out those that are deemed unfit to uh, propagate the species. Uh, and abortion in the U.S. clearly was uh, one of the ways that people with that idea, that that philosophy, that outlook on humanity, uh, it was a, it was a way that they thought uh, would would work. Um, prior to abortion, there were forced compulsory sterilizations of women and of men who came from poor uh, poor parts of the country or who were deemed to be backwards or mentally retarded or otherwise unfit. And if they were arrested or if they were, uh, I, I think you could say kidnapped, uh, they could be taken to a hospital, anesthetized, and then uh, spayed or neutered, essentially, like any uh, house pet. And, uh, you know, I think abortion being legalized, the sexual revolution, all of that, uh, was an outgrowth of this dehumanized uh, way of relating to one another. Uh, you know, trying to simultaneously uh, evolve and elevate humanity to the next level, uh, while also descending to the deepest depths of depravity and using and abusing and murdering one another, uh, supposedly for the greater good. But you have Roe versus Wade, 
which was a Supreme Court uh, decision back in uh, 19... What was it? Let me, let me look it up here. I was going to say 1973. Let's see. 1973, yep. Landmark decision issued in 1973 by the United States Supreme Court on the issue of the constitutionality of laws that criminalized or restricted access to abortions. If Kavanaugh gets confirmed to the Supreme Court, which he should be, the Democrats are absolutely terrified that Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned. And why is that so terrifying? Uh, in part because it's part of their platform now. And so they've committed themselves to the hysterics of, if you don't let me get my abortion, then you, you're a monster. You're being oppressed. You're just forcing me to have babies. Um, sorry. Okay, so you're being oppressed because we're not letting you murder your unborn child. Okay, right. Gotcha. Uh, so that's that's part of it. I think the other part of it is it's just so convenient. If you have this worldview that says I'm going to sleep around with anything that moves, and if we get pregnant, and I don't want to have to raise a child with uh, five different people because I've I've had children by five different men. Well, I just I'm going to abort all five. Or if you're one of those five men, I don't want to have to be responsible for child care, uh, child support payments for all of the women that I'm going to knock up by sleeping around and being promiscuous. Uh, oh man, how convenient to have it legal to dispose of the evidence and the consequences of my uh, sleeping around and being promiscuous. Uh, so the, the left uh, is in love with this child sacrifice to the God of self. And if Kavanaugh gets nominated, confirmed rather, I'm sorry, he's been nominated by President Donald Trump. If he gets confirmed to the Supreme Court, the left is freaking out that he's going to be part of overturning Roe versus Wade and a lot of other things too. But that one especially. And so what is it that they've done with these accusations that I think are fabricated? I don't believe that they're true. Uh, fabricated to confirm a narrative that Kavanaugh is an abuser of women. He is one of these rapists that is going to get a woman pregnant to where she needs to have an abortion to be free of the, the lifelong trauma of raising her abuser's child. Uh you know, that's, that's what's being done here, even if he gets confirmed. So that when he gets confirmed, they can go back and they can say, well, this guy, look at this. This this overturning Roe versus Wade is just a continuation of his lifelong history of abusing women. Uh, or it'll be a, a way of pressuring the Supreme Court to not doing that. So create such a hissy fit in larger society among their supporters that the Supreme Court will cave to social pressure and say, oh, we're not going to go into that. We're not going to hear that case. We will hear other cases that are safe. Uh, I have said this before. I will say it again, that if overturning Roe versus Wade, if that 
required a civil war, I think it would be worth it. Uh, you know, those that would murder the innocents, for one, should not be in charge of making the laws of this country or standing in the way of laws being made. I am not for being governed by murderers of innocent babies in the untold millions. If they're willing to murder the innocent baby who is helpless, then what are they willing to do to you or me if we're similarly at their mercy? And uh, I, I don't think that they should be allowed to dictate the way that things are going to be. Uh, you know, and, and again, in reading this history of the Byzantine Empire, uh, you know, Justinian and Theodora and Belisarius, uh, they were all almost undone. Not so much Belisarius, but but uh, Theodora and Justinian, almost undone by riots uh, among the people of Constantinople. Not all the people, but enough of them that they were about to flee for their lives. And Theodora, she had a little bit of a backbone and she helped infuse her husband and his advisors with a little bit of a backbone, gave them a rousing speech and said, no, you know, hey, uh, we don't run from this. And uh, yeah, there was uh, a little bit of uh, muscle that needed to be flexed in order to restore order in order to get the rioting to stop. Um, but if people are rioting uh, in an unjust fashion, then they brought it on themselves. Uh, if they end up getting, uh, I think, the edge of a sword. You know, if you're rioting uh, because you want to preserve your freedom to murder, then you have what's coming to you. You're a depraved person. And uh, God have mercy on your soul, whatever happens to you. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord or endeavor to. Uh, by God's grace, I hope that he uh, blesses us with the wisdom and the self-control and uh, the genuine kindness towards others that honors him. Uh, and as for our nation, you know, uh, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If we honor God and we have just laws, then God will bless that and he will prosper our nation and he will heal our land. And there will be freedom. There will be liberty. But there can be no freedom. There can be no liberty apart from honoring God. We either choose to be slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. You have to choose you know, it's the, the Bob Dylan song that uh, our pastor played here recently uh, to illustrate his sermon. you got to serve somebody. Right? It's not a question of if, it's a question of who. Uh, I think uh, in the case of Kavanaugh, uh, he is an honorable man by all appearances. But I'm sure if you dig deep enough on any single person who's ever lived except for Jesus himself, you will find dirt. So what then is the solution? If you can find dirt on anybody that uh, you look hard enough at, 
the hypocrites will say, uh, pay attention to everybody else's sin, pay no attention to mine. Uh, the slanderers will make up dirt and say, ah, well, we know there's got to be something on them. Who cares what it is? Let's just make it look like this is the dirt. We know there's dirt. has to be. Everybody's got to be as corrupt and awful as we are. And then you get, uh, I think, other men who are honest about their faults. And they say, I am not a perfect man. And these are my mistakes. Or maybe they don't. Maybe they don't broadcast specifically. Maybe they just walk with humility. Maybe they're just gracious. You know, Proverbs 14.34 says, that Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how is it that any nation can be exalted by righteousness? I think the answer to that is in humility when a nation admits it's messed up. When it puts on sackcloth and ashes, when it fasts and confesses its sin and repents. Short of that, uh, you can't have righteousness because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But with that, you can have restoration. You can have God pouring his grace out. You can have people restored in relationship with God and with one another. And I think the American story is insofar it was insofar as it was based on uh, the Protestant understanding of Christianity. It was not of works, lest any man should boast, but by grace you have been saved. Insofar as God uh, saw that the American people had turned in repentance individually and then also collectively and were honoring him as God and trying to draft their laws based on his commands to be fair, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. God blessed that and it exalted our nation. And as we have deviated and as we have uh, sought our own interests only and not honored the Lord as God, uh, we have gone down a dark path indeed. I think you have righteousness exalting a nation when that nation is not slandering, not trying to destroy reputations simply because this nominee uh, might promote justice, and I don't want justice because I'm profiting off of injustice. I think a righteous nation will be willing to say that Roe versus Wade is a grievous sin that will be judged, that God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Sin 
is a disgrace to any people. Now, if it were true that Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted women or been poorly behaved towards women or whatever, if that were true, why was that not reported decades ago? Why only now? Why only a week before he's supposed to be voted on, confirmed, You know, by some accounts, seven weeks prior is when this woman's letter was delivered to the Senate and the Democrats sat on it and waited, tried to strategize and build up a, a game plan how they were going to use this to destroy the Republicans. Not just Kavanaugh. They want to destroy Kavanaugh, but they want to destroy the Republicans and they want to destroy President Trump. They want to create a narrative that is convenient. It empowers them. Saul Alinsky was famous for saying, you got you have to create an issue, you got to freeze it, you got to polarize it. And then you pick a side. And then you become the champion for that side. You humbly offer yourself to be the leader of the resistance. Resistance to what? You know, that's a a phrase I've heard here recently, the resistance. We are the resistance. And they think they're the, being the resistance to tyranny and oppression. No. No, they are the resistance to justice and to the American people taking their government back, taking their nation back. The resistance to repentance, the stiff-necked, hard-hearted, hard-headed resistance to goodness and truth, to God. And no, that isn't to say that a Republican uh, speaks for God or anything like that. No, just stop. But all this abortion and LGBT and socialism business is of the devil. It is. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And so also is, I think, the smear campaign against Kavanaugh. It is uh, an effort not to get at the truth because the Democrats don't care about truth. They have such a double standard. They, they're whipped into a frenzy when it's convenient against somebody that they want to destroy. And they're depending on smoke and mirrors and sleight of hand to keep the broader voting public from even thinking about the sexual abuse that many, many women complained of at the hands of prominent Democrats. The Democrats looked the other way. They said, ah, no, no, no. That was far more telling. It was far more uh, quickly reported. And then what happened? What was done about it? You know, they lionized Bill Clinton. They lionized Ted Kennedy. And even in the case of Barack Obama, you know, all this business about him being scandal free and 
boy, his his family, they just they look pretty happy and well adjusted. It looks like he's got a good marriage. Everybody loves everybody and gets along and they're just calm and well adjusted. And, you know, that maybe is irrelevant. When you look at what he did to destroy America's moral fabric, you know, if you start telling public schools you either are going to accept boys in the girls' locker rooms and vice versa, or else you're not going to get funding. You're going to promote the LGBT agenda, or else we're going to destroy you. You're going to normalize every kind of sexual perversion, or we will run you into the ground. No, that's a scandal uh, of infinite magnitude. Totally depraved and evil. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So, I think Kavanaugh should be uh, confirmed. I think he should be voted on quickly, decisively. I think the Republicans need to stop dithering. They need to be secure and confident, not in their own righteousness, because I'm sure they have none. But in what is right, if God has said this is right, if we know the truth, act on it. And don't be intimidated by liars and slanderers and every kind of malefactor that makes up the Democratic Party. So anyway, uh, that's a little bit about insecurity, uh, a lot about uh, what should give us the basis for confidence. And uh, I hope you've gotten something from this podcast episode. Uh, if you have anything to add, subtract. Multiply, divide, uh, <laughs> extrapolate further. If you want to discuss anything I said or uh, if you've got some additional points or counterpoints, please uh, find me on social media or you can email me at garrettmullet at gmail.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-M-U-L-L-E-T at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and God bless.